do here. So anybody uh, like Jamie Whitmore? Anybody here have heard before? Oh, yeah. So we have an amazing night tonight in store. So I'm going to have Doug come up here, and he's going to kick it off. And uh, why don't you welcome Doug Reed. Gracias. Well, hey, it's good to see everybody tonight. It's kind of cool over here, huh? I was like, man, we're in the chapel. But I walked in, I was like, it's kind of cool. I like it. I like it. And uh, so anyway, it's good, good to have everybody. I know we have some visitors here tonight, and, and this is a special night. And um, so I'm, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, this young lady who's coming to speak to us tonight has lived a lot of life in a couple of short years, right? And we were just talking about it before. It's amazing how life throws us so many curveballs. And they may all come at once, and they may be all spread out. But here's the thing. We call this place Epic Life for one reason. Because when you choose to let your life be founded in Christ, no matter what comes at you, you can make it. And uh, I know you're going to hear that in this story tonight as well, and I'll let her explain her whole story to you. It is amazing. And uh, about a year ago... Eddie had talked to me about how he was going to do this race up in Tahoe. And I thought, well, yeah, you know, cool. I want to try a race. And so I signed up and I went and found out later it was one of the hardest ones to start off with and got my butt kicked, like, brutally. It snowed that day, hailed on me on top of the mountain. It was like, I was this close, just right above hell. And, uh... Anyway, it was a tough ride, and it, but, I, but I had a blast. And while I was there, um, I had already been reading about this young lady. I had heard, uh, you know, I'd been reading about her. her name was Jamie Whitmore and her story. And, and I was so inspired. And when I got there, she was actually, she was at this race. And the announcer that was there that day had, had been talking to her and interviewed her. And I remember she had told her story. And I think she, you did a little clinic there that day. And it was just really cool. My wife and I were just like... You know, she had really captured our attention for whatever reason. A couple months later, we happened to see her downtown at the Cannondale tent uh, for the tour of California. And I knew there was something about this girl that inspired me. And there, there was something special. And come to find out, she was a believer in Jesus Christ. And um, so I was excited to get to talk to her and, and invite her here tonight because I knew this would be a crowd that would, would love to hear. So she's going to be up in just a minute, but before she comes, she, there's a video about her that I think you definitely need to see that will fill you in on a little bit of her history. And then, and then when she comes tonight, will you help me welcome her in just a couple minutes? So go ahead and roll the video, guys. This is the one race that has eluded me. It's, it's been in my grasp, and then it's been gone. I want it bad. I, I definitely am not going to go down without a fight this year. Jamie Whitmore is a fighter. She is Xterra's winningest pro ever with 37 career victories. To give you an idea of that dominance, the person with the second most career wins is Conrad Stoltz with only 26. Jamie has battled and beat the world's best all over the Xterra planet on four different continents. But her contributions to Xterra go far beyond five wins in Tahoe and her epic battles on Maui against Melanie McQuaid. No athlete has been a greater ambassador for Xterra than Jamie. She and husband Courtney, a former Mr. Xterra award winner, 
have traveled the world embracing the XTERRA community. Whether it was giving countless training clinics or sharing words of encouragement to those just starting out in XTERRA, Jamie's winning attitude is infectious and she's inspired many, including her own father, Biff, to get on the XTERRA trails. For years, Jamie has raised awareness and money for Huntington's disease, a hereditary neurological disorder that affects members of her own family and some of her closest friends through her own foundation, Jamie's Race for Research. Not long ago, the exterior world was shocked and saddened to hear that Jamie wouldn't be racing in 2008. Cancer. It affects millions of people every day. But how could Jane Whitmore have it? She's just 31 years old, in her athletic prime, in fantastic physical condition, and the most dominant ex-Terra athlete ever. She's got a great personality. She and her husband have always been very personable and, and obviously embody uh, just the positive attitude that an athlete should have and, and I really really look up to her as an athlete and as a person. To see some that's happened to someone as, as amazing as Jamie and um, when she was at the peak of her athletic career she was the best athlete on, on the earth uh, arguably it makes you really realize how fragile um, life is and how, how we need to appreciate what we have at the time. Jamie Whitmore is one of my favorite people. When I was racing her, I really respected her as an athlete, and I've been following along with some of the difficulties that she's having this year, and it just, it's heartbreaking. In the last seven months, Jamie has had two malignant tumors removed from her body. But rather than ask why me, Jamie has taken on cancer with the same fighting spirit that's made her such an athletic success. For years, she's had the words, powered by God, engraved on her bike. And powered by God continues to be her battle cry. Jamie has got great faith, and she's really strong, and we really admire her and how she copes with this. Um, it's, it must be really, really difficult, and it's definitely going to leave a void in Exeter, and somehow we feel that she's not going to disappear. She'll, she'll still be around, and she'll still be part of Exeter, but um, it's going to be tough realizing that she'll She'll never race Exeter again. It's, it's very hard um, for us, so I can imagine, for how hard it has to be for her. And she must be really, really strong to be able to fight that. As we as athletes get near the end of our career, um, the, the most we can hope for is to retire on our own terms. And I just feel bad for her that she didn't get that opportunity. But um, I think we'll, we'll always remember her amazing accomplishments in this sport. And she definitely set the bar really high. And um, for, for as long as I'm left in the sport, I'll definitely try to, to rise to, to that level that she always made me. And I'll, you know, really appreciate the support that she's giving me right now. I just have so much respect for her uh, athletically and even more respect for the way that she's handling her uh, challenges right now. I mean, she's just amazing. Her attitude is amazing. And if anyone's going to come through this with big positives in their lives, then I really know it's Jamie because I'm seeing it already. Jamie Whitmore has been down before, and she has always gotten up. Now she is in her biggest battle against cancer, and she's inspiring many by continuing to fight this awful disease. Hey, 
How could we expect anything less from her? As I said before, Jamie's a fighter. So for that, and for a constant embodiment of the Xterra spirit, we salute Jamie Whitmore, 2008 Xterra Warrior. Thank you. Thank you. Now, this last, I would say it's been about two years now, has been probably the hardest I've ever struggled, and I've in, endured a lot in racing. I've raced around the world with some of the toughest people I've ever met. And just to give you a little background, the reason I got into sports in the first place as a little kid was because I used to watch, you know, the Olympics, all the guys running, football players. And I used to see them always kind of showboat. Every time they'd get a touchdown or they'd finish the, cross the finish line in first place, they'd always then do this little, you know, all about me dance. But then they'd turn around and say, well, I want to thank God. And I used to be quite confused because I would say, how can you thank God when you're sitting there and it's all about you? So my goal was I was going to find the one sport I was good at so that I could cross the finish line and give praise to God and give, give him the glory and say the reason I was out here and the reason I did so well was because of him. And I got that privilege starting eight years ago. I think I raced, or ten years ago, I started racing in triathlon. And I had found my niche with off-road and they said 37, it was actually 41. <laughs> 41 wins <laughs> all across the world. And uh, I had the pleasure of meeting a lot of people. And as you saw, I did race by Powered by God. And that was my way to let people know, you know, I'm out here for God. And I'm out here because he's given me the talent and the ability to do well. And I used to have this mantra when I would race. I would, whenever it seemed like I was not doing well or I was starting to want to win for the wrong reason, I would start chanting with God's strength for God's glory. And no matter what place I came in, I always won that day as long as I stuck to that mantra. And then in 2007, it was at the Xterra World Championship. I, it was the world's biggest race of the year, biggest payday. I had won every race but one that year. And I was, you know, favored to win. Everything was going well. And about five miles into the bike, something wasn't right. My leg was feeling a little weird. It was starting to cramp. It was very abnormal. And I finished the race, but I finished it in quite a lot of pain. I was cramping. Um, I suffered through, and I finished in third place. So to me, that was a good day. I was like, I still get a paycheck. And, um, <laughs> and that night, I had some weird tingling in my leg. And I kept trying, I couldn't figure out what was wrong. But I took my normal two weeks off. Everything seemed to be normal. When I started to run again, I had this really, really tight, nagging pain in my hamstring. And I thought, oh no, I must have pulled something. I must have gone too hard in the race. What's wrong with me? So I kept trying to run because that's what we athletes do. Oh, it's just a little pain. But it never went away. 
And then it, it proceeded to get worse and worse. So I took time off. I took about a month off from running. I was still swimming. I was still biking. I was getting a little paranoid because, you know, season was going to be starting in a couple months. And I kept thinking, God, what is wrong with me? You know, there's just, you got to figure out what's wrong with me. This needs to get better. Well, it kept getting worse. Every time I would try to run, the pain would just shoot down my leg. And I thought, you know, oops, sorry about that. <laughs> Doctors kept telling me, oh, it's tendonitis, it's this, it's that. And I was like, how can it be tendonitis if I'm not running? I'm not doing anything. It's getting worse. And then by the end of January, because this was October, by the end of January, the pain was getting so incredibly bad that I wasn't even sleeping anymore. And I was in so much pain that, I mean, I would just cry. And I would, I would think, gosh, I have a high tolerance for pain. What is wrong with me? And my husband would say, I don't know. Go see the doctor. So we went to a couple emergency rooms, and, you know, you just have a sciatic nerve problem. It's just a sciatic nerve problem. And finally, a friend of ours said, go to the emergency room. You need to demand a CT scan. Make them do a CT scan. So we did. And after 13 hours, they did a CT scan. And they came back and said, you have an ovarian cyst. And I thought, oh, my gosh. How many months of racing am I going to miss if I have an ovarian cyst? What does this mean? <laughs> and the doctor's like, well, you know, you need to go see an OB and get that checked out, an OBGYN, and, and make sure, you know, we need to figure out if this is cancerous, what's going on. So all this time, I'm looking at my husband going, oh, man, there goes half my season. And what if they have to take my ovary? What does that mean? You know, and little things you start kind of getting a little bit paranoid about. Well, then I went to go see the OBGYN, and he says, yeah, I don't think this is an, a, a cyst of any kind on your ovary. I, I think it's something more, but just in case, I'm going to send you to an ovarian cancer specialist. So then I thought, oh my gosh, cancer. I mean, nobody ever wants to hear the word cancer. So I remember praying, please, God, just don't let this be an ovarian cyst. You know, don't let it be cancer. Please just let it be something I can deal with. I'll be okay with missing a couple months of racing. Just don't let it be serious. And we went to see the specialist. And he says, I need to do a laparoscopy. I need to go in and do some kind of a biopsy, get a piece of it, and check to see what it was. It was supposed to be a simple procedure in and out in a couple hours. I wasn't even going to need to stay overnight. Well, I woke up, and I had this excruciating pain in my stomach. Turns out, when they went to get a sample, they took a, bunch, a sample of blood vessels, and I started to bleed out. So they had to cut me open and stop the bleeding immediately. So I kind of woke up, and they said, we're going to have to keep you for a couple days. Then they went to try to take out my catheter, only I couldn't go to the bathroom on my own. And they kept saying, just get up and try to go. But I couldn't get up because I was in even more pain than when I had come in. And I couldn't go at all. And I kept trying to explain to them. So pretty soon my stomach started to stend and I was crying. I said, something's wrong. So they put the catheter back in. And then the next day they tried to pull it back out. Same thing happened, and I started screaming, something's wrong. So they put it back in, finally sent me to go see another doctor. I had my fill of doctors at this point. And I went and saw this other guy, and, he, and I went into his office, and I'll never forget it because it was probably the worst experience I've ever had with a doctor in my entire life. He says, you know, 
You could have cancer. It's some kind of a tumor in there. Ten years ago, we would have just amputated your leg. That's what we would deal with. He says, I don't really know what we're going to do, what we're going to find when we go in there, but we may have to take your rectum, your colon, anything that this thing's touching, we may have to take. And all I'm thinking about is, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to be able to go to the bathroom on my own. I mean, what does this mean? What are you telling me? And about 15 minutes after the doctor started talking, I just started crying. And I just kept thinking, I cannot believe this is happening to me. And eventually, you know, the doctor left the room and said, well, you can take another 30 minutes before, you have to, before I need this room. And I just looked at my dad, and I was just like, what do we do? You know, and that night, we prayed. And I just asked God for the strength and for the proper doctor to, to, that I would find the proper doctor to go to because I had two choices. I could go to a cancer treatment center or I could go to UCSF and go see nerve doctors. And something inside me told me that this had more to do with nerves than it had to do with cancer. So I said, we're going to San Francisco. So a friend got us an appointment with a doctor out there. And the entire two-hour drive to the hospital, I was in the back of my dad's SUV laying down because I couldn't sit. I was completely bedridden at this point. My leg had gone into complete atrophy. It kind of looked like one of Tyrannosaurus Rex's, you know, his little arms. It was bad. It was like skin and bones on the leg. And, and I hadn't walked in a month. And I was hooked up to a Foley bag, you know, a catheter. I couldn't go to the bathroom on my own. And it was just... It was a very humbling and humiliating experience for me. But the entire two hours, I was screaming in utter pain. And, you know, I don't remember a lot of it because I think I kind of dozed off because I hadn't slept in about three weeks, more than about 15 or 20 minutes at a time. And my husband was making his phone calls because he was helping to drive us down. And he said that anyone he talked to couldn't believe that was me in the background. And his dad had even said if that was his dog, he would have put it out of its misery. So it tells you how much pain I was in. As soon as we got down there, the doctor took one look at me and said, All right, we're going to admit you to the hospital right away so that we can treat you for pain. Because on a scale of 1 to 10, my pain was like at a 20. And it was no joke. So they got me into the hospital, started to get me on a bunch of different pain medications. And I'm the type of person that has never so much as even taken, like, more than two Advil, okay? And they've got me on, like, you know, Dilaudid and Oxycodone, all these things. My husband knows the names of them all. And I'm just like, I have no idea what this is, but it sure made me feel good. <laughs> on a scale of 1 to 10, I was now at, like, a 5. But um, they got that under control. And the next step was to figure out what exactly this was, if it was cancer, and where, where it was originating from. Because doctors, before they really cut you open, they kind of like to know what they're dealing with. So they tried to go in through the front, they tried to go in through the back, and they kept trying to get all these biopsies, and nothing was allowing them because the tumor was so squishy that they were afraid if they took a sample, it would completely burst. And they knew that it was cancer because a needle biopsy, the only biopsy that they were able to get, told them it was a spindle cell. So they knew it was cancer. And they feared if they took a sample, a bigger chunk, and it burst, they would kill me. So I'm glad they decided to not do that. <laughs> and they proceeded to schedule an appointment on March 28th for my surgery that they were going to extract 
the tumor. And this was their plan. They were going to have every doctor that had to do with a vital organ in this area, in this area, they were going to be in there on hand so that once they cut me open and were really able to look around, they could figure out what it was in there, you know, and who actually needed to extract the tumor. Turned out, the tumor was growing in my sciatic nerve, which was not a good thing. Because it's very rare to have a nerve tumor be cancerous, like 3% of them are cancerous, which means they don't really know how to treat anybody with a cancerous nerve tumor. So after nine and a half hours, yeah, nine and a half hours, they were able to remove the tumor pretty, what they thought was successfully. And I woke up, you know, in and out of ICU for a couple days. And then Monday, I don't remember much, but I had to start having a blood transfusion because during the operation, I had lost 16 pints of blood, which is more than what your body even carries. So by Tuesday, physical therapist comes in and says, okay, Jamie, I need you to get up. We need to start walking. And I thought, it's walking, okay. So he hands me my little walker, and he says, okay, you need to sit up. You need to get out of bed, and you need to walk. I was like, okay. So I got up, only I couldn't walk. My leg had been in atrophy for so long, and, and what they weren't telling me was that my nerve was dead. When they went in to remove the tumor, the tumor had choked off the nerve itself. So I had no longer had function of my leg below the knee. So I can't do this. It's called drop foot. I had no movement. I couldn't feel my foot. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought. <laughs> so every day, the physical therapist would come in and say, get out of bed. You need to start walking. And I would try, but I wasn't very good at it. And I remember... By Friday, I kind of started thinking, I was a 2004 Exeter World Champion. I won six U.S. titles, two European titles, and I can't even walk. And I started to think, what am I going to do? And I said, and I just remember that night praying to God, please let me start walking. Because they wanted to put me in a home where they put stroke victims and people who can't take care of themselves to learn to walk again. And I was not going to have that. I wanted to go home. So Saturday morning rolled around and I looked at my dad and I said, all right, dad, you taught me to walk once. You're going to teach me to walk again. <laughs> so we made our little rounds, the hospital. And, and each time I got a little bit better, we had to have my foot all bandaged up because my foot just kind of flopped like this. And I still couldn't quite put a lot of weight on it, but I was walking with the walker. I was walking on my own. And I remember thanking God for being able to do that because it took me two days. What the physical therapist couldn't accomplish all week long, you know, my dad got me to do in two days. So Monday I was discharged. Then three weeks later I was told, you need to start radiation. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm 31 years old. I've never had kids. I plan to have kids. Is this going to mess me up? What do I need to do? Do I have to harvest eggs? They said, we'll give you some time. You can go harvest eggs. And I thought, do I really want to do this? Because this is a very expensive procedure that insurance does not cover. And I remember praying about it and praying about it. And we found a place within one day. So I spent the next four weeks harvesting eggs and then went right into starting radiation. Four days into radiation, I got called into the radiology or the radiation doctor's 
office and my oncologist was there and I thought oh wow he's coming to check me out because I'm doing so well you know I'm swimming every day I'm doing some rehab I'm doing leg weights and my what nice doctor to come check on me so I'm all smiles in the office sitting there and they both kind of have this look this really you know plain stare in their face and I'm still smiling away thinking life is grand I'm four days into radiation you know I'm cancer free things are great And the doctor says, I don't want to have to be the one to tell you this, but the tumors come back, and it's already the same size as the first one. You know, I don't know if it was shock or if I was just so at peace with knowing that God would take care of me, and I like to think it was a combination of both. But I just kind of smiled at him and said, well, what does that mean? You know, what do we do? Because you know, even my dad was like all depressed all of a sudden. And there I am still smiling like everything's just going to be fine. And the doctor says, well, we have to schedule another surgery. And I said, all right, let's set the date right now. So July 14th, as soon as I was done with radiation, I was going immediately into surgery. So July 14th came around. I was in there for 12 and a half hours. Only this time... They took the rest of my sciatic nerve, they took my entire glute muscle, and part of my tailbone, and some more nerves. You know, and I'm thinking, I've already gone through one surgery, and I was in really bad shape. This time, I was in great shape going in there. I had been swimming every day for like an hour. I had been doing the elliptical trainer. You know, everything was great. Oh no. Second surgery, way worse. Way worse. I had to lay on my side for four weeks straight. I could barely get out of bed to go to the bathroom, you know, when they took the epidural out. When the epidural was in there, life was great. I was walking around. I was motoring. As soon as they took that thing out, I was like, I can't walk anymore. But, um, you know, it was the first time that I really started to break down. Because after the first surgery, the doctors told me I'd never run again. But I said, you know what, if God wants me to run again, I'll run again. And if he doesn't want me to run again, I won't run again. But you know, it's in God's hands. But the second surgery, so much more had been taken. And I, I kind of was like, God, what is going on? You know, how, much, how strong do you think I am? Because I don't think I can take much more of this. I can't take any more bad news. I can't take any more muscles or nerves being gone. You know, this is bad. This is pretty bad. I was having problems going to the bathroom. I mean, it was just the most humbling experience for somebody who's been so independent for so many years. But I prayed, and I was in a lot of pain after they took that epidural out. And I'm type, again, don't like to take painkillers. So I was like, I'm going to, you know, make it through. And the nurses keep coming in. Just take some more Dilaudid and some more oxycodone. And I'm like, no. I said, you know, I'll get through this. So finally I was discharged, and I went home, and I was walking, and all of a sudden my back started hurting. And there were a couple days, my back, it just, it just kept getting worse and worse, and I thought, man, what did they do to me? They really messed me up. Well, then all of a sudden I started throwing up. Then I got a fever. And this was two weeks after I'd been discharged. And then I kept, you know, taking the temperature and looking, and I was like, oh, no. It's going up to 102. Anytime you're post 
surgery. If you get 102, you have to go back to the emergency room. And I thought, you know, I've had my fill of hospitals. I really don't want to go back. Meanwhile, my husband's calling a doctor and telling on me, she's got a temperature of 102. She needs to go back to the hospital. And I'm like, no, I don't want to go. And finally, the doctor calls. She gets on the phone, and she says, Jamie, you have to come to San Francisco. You need to come back to the hospital. And I was crying on the phone, but I don't want to. I I have to lay on my side the whole way, and it's just, come on, just let me stay home. She says, Jamie, I've been reading your blog. I know what you've been going through. I know how much pain you're in, but you need to come to the hospital. And I said, fine, if you've read my blog, I'll come in. (laughs) So we packed up the car and drove all the way to San Francisco. And, you know, God was so watching over me that day because by the time I had gotten to the hospital, my temperature was 103. I had gone septic. I had a kidney infection. My whole body, I had blood, I would, I was, it was poisoned. And if I had waited, I mean, even a day, I could have died. I could have gone past the point of them saving me. And by Saturday... I don't remember anything. My temperature was 104, and the only thing I remember is waking up, packed in ice. My dad's holding my arm because I guess I kept trying to rip out the IV. And the doctors are just like, do you know where you are? I was like, yeah, the hospital. Do you know what day it is? And I'm looking at the calendar behind my dad. I was like, um, Saturday? No, it's Sunday, but that's close enough. Or I said Sunday, and they're like, no, it's Saturday, close enough. But immediately that day, I had to go in. And they had to put a drain in my bag, and right into the kidney, all the way into the kidney. Because I had had so much scar tissue form from the radiation and then from the second surgery that my kidney couldn't drain to the bladder anymore. So, you know, then I had this little drain coming out of me. And I thought, great, one more thing. And I remember as much pain as I was in, because I was in so much pain for so long with the nerves, that when the kidney pain came along, I just had no tolerance for pain anymore. I was this big, big baby. I just couldn't take it. I was like, I couldn't even walk from, you know, one side of the room to the other without just complaining the entire time. And the doctors ended up sending me home after so many days. They kept me there for two weeks because they had to put me on antibiotics because, you know, when you go septic, it's, it's really serious. So I went home after two weeks. I was there for maybe three, four days. All of a sudden, vomiting started again. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. So back to the hospital I went. For the next two months, I was in and out of the hospital, in and out, in and out, because they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I couldn't hold food down. I could barely keep liquids down. The drain was still in there. The pain was still there. Nothing was getting better. And I remember so many times I would just cry myself to sleep. And I kept praying, please, God, let tomorrow just be better than today. Can you just take some of this pain away? Because, you know, I just don't know how much more I can take. And every day I'd wake up, the pain would still be there, and I'd make it through the day. And then that night, I would pray for the same thing. And then I would pray, please, God, I'm not going to make it through this without your help. I ha- you have to give me your strength. You have to give me some sign that it's going to get a little bit better. Just please, please. And every night, that's what I would pray. People would ask, what can we do for you? I was like, please pray for me. <laughs> I need more prayers. Send it on the prayer chain. That's all I wanted was the pain to just go away. 
So in and out of the hospital, I kept going. And finally, they said, well, we think you have a bone infection. And that's really serious because bone infections are really hard to get rid of. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. All right, what do we do now? Well, we're going to have to insert a pick line into your arm, and then you're going to be attached to an antibiotic pack that you're going to have to carry around for 24 hours. And every 24 hours, you're going to have to change the IV. And I thought, oh, great, I can barely even walk, and now you got me carrying an IV pack? Okay. So away I went home with my pick line, and that's when you saw me in Tahoe. I was still on my walker, and I had my pick line. I demanded that I leave the hospital just to go to this event in Tahoe because it was that important to me. I had won that race five out of six times. I was going to be there. But, um, you know, eventually, I think it took about another month, and I got the pick line out. I started to feel a little bit better. I was still having problems with nausea. But at this point, since my second surgery, it had been five months. Five months that I was in and out of the hospital in utter pain, barely able to walk. I was down to 98 pounds, and I'm normally race weights like 115. I looked like I had just come out of a concentration camp because I was nothing but skin and bones. I had barely any strength to get out of bed and take care of myself. If that, I mean, I, I would show you the pictures, but they're so bad. I don't really like showing. <laughs> but eventually, I was supposed to start chemo. Because any time cancer comes back with a cancer they don't know too much about, they said, Jamie, we need to start you on chemo. Only I was so sick for those five months, I could never start chemo. They said if I started it, it would have killed me. Because it was, it, I was going to have one of the second most aggressive types of chemo where I was going to be hospitalized for four days with a port, and I was going to be getting it for, for those four days straight, 24 hours. They would keep me an extra week, and then they would send me home, and I would be back in two weeks for six months. That's what they were going to do. That was their best guesstimation to stop the cancer from coming back. Well, being so sick and not being able to start it, I don't know if that was a blessing. I consider it a blessing. But I was almost like I was on chemo because I was that sick. But I ended up getting my first cancer scan at the end of October. And it was cancer-free. And I thought, great. Now can we just deal with this drain that's coming out of my back? And they said, well, we have to wait. You need to pass one more cancer scan before we can decide if you're going to start chemo. If it's cancer-free, you won't start chemo, and we'll address the kidney bag. If it's cancer, you're starting chemo, and then you're not dealing with the kidney bag until after chemo. So I was like, okay. So life started to resume around January. I'd go to the gym. I'd have my little bag. I'd attach it to my elliptical, and I'd be on there, you know, going away, and people are looking at me. I was like, I don't care. You know, I'm battling cancer. Don't mess with me. <laughs> if I can't run, I'm working out on this. I can't swim, so I'm doing what I can do. And I'd lift weights, and people would just look at me, and I'd have my little cane on one side. It's all powered by God, and the other, it's cancer sucks. <laughs> I was representing. But <laughs> eventually, come February, I went in for my second cancer scan. And I, oh, man, the night before, I just kept praying. I was like, please, God, no cancer, no cancer, so there's no chemo. Just please, let's just deal with this kidney thing. And I never prayed so hard in my life, and the prayer chains were going, and I went in the next day. And it's the most terrifying thing 
to have your scan and then sit and wait in the doctor's office and you're just sitting there and they always walk in with just the plain look and you're trying to read them like what is he gonna say what's he gonna say and he says well everything looks good and I said really he says yep everything looks good you can go figure out how to get the, can- or the, the kidney bag out with, with the other oncologist, or the urologist. You're done here. I was like, sweet. Never have I been so happy to go home, the whole drive from San Francisco, calling everybody, dude, it's the second scan, no cancer. So then it was on to dealing with the kidney bag, <laughs> which in a task of itself seems like it would be the easiest of all. Well, The procedure that they wanted to do originally was move my bladder and squish it up towards the kidney. And then there was going to be like this huge chance that I wouldn't be able to go to the bathroom on my own. And I was like, no. Because let me tell you, every surgery, my priority has been go to the bathroom on my own, walk, have kids, you know. And Well, first it was I want to live. But, you know... (laughs) But when they were telling me there was a percentage and that they only performed this surgery like five times in a year, I was like, no, you better find something else to do. I was like, just take the kidney. I only need one. But they were so paranoid to leave me with one kidney being as young as I am and and battling cancer that they're like, no, we got to find another way. So they came up with this plan to auto-transplant my kidney, meaning they were going to extract the kidney and then they were going to reinsert it into my pelvic area, which means I wouldn't need to go on immunosuppressants or anything like that because it's my own kidney, and it would just be in a new area. So I was like, all right, I'm game. Let's go for it. So June 8th, they scheduled me for this surgery. And I went in, had the surgery, first one that only took three and a half hours. All my family and friends were ecstatic because they weren't there, you know, half the day waiting. And when I woke up, same normal pains that you have from a surgery. This time, nothing is bad. I was out. I was walking. I knew the routine. I did my laps. I waved hi to all the nurses that knew me. We were on first name basis. Everything was great. And then I went home. It was the, it was the shortest day I'd had in the hospital. I think I was only there about six days as opposed to normally 10 to 12. And I got home. I was fine for about a week. And then all of a sudden, I just started getting really nauseous. And I started vomiting. And I thought, you have got to be kidding me, God. What is going on now? Because I used to talk a lot with God. You got a lot of time on your hands when you're laying around in a bed. And eventually, it was two weeks, I think, I had dealt with the nausea. Because I didn't have a fever. So there wasn't this high priority of you need to go to the emergency room. And I didn't have any kind of infection. There was no signs. But it was very odd that I was nauseous for two weeks. I mean, just 24-7, I was just nauseous. I couldn't eat anything. I was so sick. And they said, my doctors called and said, okay, since you don't have a fever, just go to the nearest emergency room to you. Tell them to call us. We'll demand a CT scan. We just want to make sure that there's nothing going on with the kidney being in the new place. Because there's a 1% chance, 1% chance that your body can reject your, your, your own kidney. So I go to the emergency room, and it was like UC Davis, and you know the standard questions, do you think you can be pregnant, this and this and this. I'm like, no, I just had surgery four weeks ago. Are you kidding me? I haven't done anything. And they said, well, we still need to check. I was like, you don't, what do you need? Just do the CT scan. I've got something wrong. It's, it's hurting. And they said, we, we just need to do our standard procedure. I was like, fine, whatever. Do what you got to do. So then the doctor comes running back in. Oh, guess what? You're pregnant. I was like, 
there's no way. And she said, oh, you are. We'll rerun the test. So they went and reran the test, came back in. Oh, yeah, no, you're pregnant. That's why you're so sick. I was like, are you sure? Yes, Jamie, pregnant. Okay. Now, and then they needed to check to make sure, you know, it was a viable pregnancy because I had gone through surgery. I was like three days pregnant, we figured out. So I was like, okay, whatever. I'm in a state of shock. I cannot believe what's going on. I've only been cancer-free for like a year and a half. You know, what I just was, I think I was more shocked to find out I was pregnant than when I found out I had cancer. So, so they took me into the little room, and I went and did the little ultrasound. He's like, oh, yeah, it's a viable pregnancy. Everything looks good. No, oh, by the way, you're having twins. And I remember thinking, wow, God, you so have a sense of humor. <laughs> and I had to go back and tell my husband he had the same reaction. What? How? But, um, you know, what I learned through all of this was that in my racing, you know, I had this huge voice. I, I was all around the world telling people about how much I, I raced, you know, for God. And every time I was on that podium, I thanked God. And it was so important to me to make sure that he was glorified over myself. And going through the cancer, what devastated me the most was I felt I was no longer going to have this voice in the ex-terror world, in the sports world, to be able to tell people, you know, I'm successful and it's because of God. And what I learned was that my platform was like that big before. And then when I got cancer, it was like that big. And what I realized was I had this even greater testimony to be able to share with people. And there's no way, I mean, there's no way I would have ever made it through what, I went, what I've gone through the past two years if I didn't have God in my life, if I didn't have faith in him. And, it's, and I just remember thinking on so many occasions, I don't know how anybody could go through what I went through without having faith. And people would always ask, you know, you're so strong, Jamie. How are you doing it? And it was a simple, simple answer because God got me through it all. You know, and there was one point, you know, because don't get me wrong. There were times, I never asked why this was happening to me, but there were times where I was just like, God, you, you, you just got to stop. This is just too much for me. And I would get distraught over the fact that I would never race again. And I realized that ultimately... He has a plan for me, and it may not be the plan that I want. I may not be racing anymore as a professional, but he's still going to put me out there where he needs me to be. And that's kind of a thing that, that has kept me going. And it's kept me realizing that, you know, life is still good. I'm still alive. And I so easily could be like so many other cancer people and just couldn't be here anymore. And... It was so important to me to show people that you could, you can go through all of that and still fight. You know, you fight the good fight and do what you do. It, it, my, my doctors would drop their charts at things that I was doing right before radiation. Oh, yeah, I did an hour swim. I did an hour weights. And they're like, Jamie, aren't you tired? Well, maybe it's from the two-hour drive all the way to San Francisco to get radiation for 20 minutes and then drive all the way home. But no, the swimming's going well. And even now, the doctors are amazed at the fact that I have no hamstring. I have no 
sciatic nerve at all whatsoever. I have no glute muscle, and yet I can bend my knee. And if any of you know anatomy, you need your hamstring to be able to bend your knee. You need that nerve. And I can bend my knee. And the nerve doctor had no explanation for it. And I was like, well, God wanted me to bend the knee. So I'm bending the knee. But he, you know, he's just, I don't know why. And so many, you know, so many people tell me, you're never going to run again. You're not, he told me, yeah, you'll ride a stationary bike, but you'll never be able to ride a normal bike. And I was like, you just watch and see. I'll do it. And, you know, that's kind of what I've learned is to just have faith and know that God will lead me into the direction that I'm supposed to be going. And then I just kind of, I always like to have, if anyone wants to ask questions, I mean, I don't know, people are kind of shy, but it's just so much has happened that sometimes I can't always cover everything. And so if any of you have any questions that you want to ask right now or even afterwards, I'm more than happy to share my story. It's all on the wide world web on my blog. You know, I just kind of, I have no shame in my game. I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> Nothing? Oh, when am I due? Uh, Jan- uh, February 1st. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I'm still shocked on that whole thing. <laughs> Everyone else is excited, and I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? Yep, that's exactly why after the second surgery, I was in and out of the hospital. When they thought it was a bone infection, it was actually the combination of methadone and the antibiotics that they had me on that made me sick for so long. And it was a friend of ours who was a doctor who figured that out. It only took them five months. But yeah, yeah, I told you, I was on hardcore drugs, man. I was like... Because methadone is what they give heroin people to wean off heroin. And again, a person, I've never even smoked pot in my life. I've never done Advil. I mean, nothing. Advil is like the strongest thing I'd ever had. I tell you, drugs are crazy. (laughs) Stay away. (laughs) Even the prescription ones. (laughs) Any other questions? Two boys. Yeah. You know, it was going to be my goal to get back on a bike and be doing a race next weekend. Um, So eventually what I want to do is just continue to share my story, you know, and and encourage people, other cancer patients and and people. Because I kind of found myself falling in like five different categories now. Before I was just like professional athlete. Now I'm a professional athlete or former professional athlete. Challenged. Um, cancer survivor, and then now mom. So, so it'll be, it, it, it honestly is going to be trying to get back on a bike one day because I want to be out there riding. I, I miss that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd never really had, I think I had plantar fasciitis once when I was in college. I've never even really had an injury. So to wake up and have the doctor say, oh, yeah, you're going to be disabled for the rest of your life, that was quite a shock. And you know what? I would trade my handicap parking to be able to run again. <laughs> but, but everyone always wants to ride with me. They're like, yes, front row parking, Jamie. Sweet. But, um, you know, sometimes it has its perks. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. What level of pain are you at now? 
you know, thankfully, it's when I get nerve pain, which is really weird because there is no nerve in this leg, but I still get that shocking nerve pain down into my foot. Um, you know, it'll go for about a minute or two at a time, and it'll be like an eight. Like, all of a sudden, you know, it'll start, ah! It's almost like you're being shocked by one of those dog fences, the electric fences, and it really is like that. It's, But um, for the first time, I'm off all medications. I've been off, well, I had to go off everything once I found out I was pregnant, <laughs> which was great because I hate being on drugs. And then aside from the anti-nausea meds, I'm off everything, and I finally feel like me again. I was like, yes, I have energy. <laughs> I'm not all. <laughs> but yeah, so, but it, it's so far in between, and, and that's, I'm, I'm most blessed by that. Because, you know, it's weird. The one thing your body cannot remember is pain. Like, you, you, you try to think... That's why they have words that describe the pain. Dull, sharp, achy. Because you can't really remember pain. That's why women keep giving birth, right? Because they don't remember. So, but what, what I remember most about the pain that I was in was looking at the faces of the people while I was screaming. And, and, and you know, their hands on me while they were praying for me. You know, they had some pretty scary, distraught looks in their face, like I was this wounded deer that had just been shot with an arrow and was on my life, you know, last life. Uh, and, and so I know it was bad because of that. But other than that, you know, I always am like, oh, it wasn't that bad. And, and my husband and my dad are like, yeah, right, it was bad. <laughs> I was like, no way, man, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> Any more questions? Yeah, that's a good question. He had asked if there was a passage or a Bible verse that, that kind of got me through. And number one was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that, that really, every time... I thought I couldn't make it, I would, I would go to that, and I would say, you know, I, I know I can make it because of that, and I, and also, you know, God will not forsake me, um, there was, what was, what I found to be the most interesting through all of this is because I had a blog, people were able to email me through this, and I would get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of emails, and I always seemed to get the right email with the right passage during the time that I needed it. And you can go back and look at my blogs, and there's one title, like, In My Darkest Hours. And it was at the time, I think, I was finally at my lowest. Because, to be honest with you, when I was first diagnosed, even as much pain as I was in, I was still really strong. I was really positive. I was really confident that everything was going to be okay. And I just believed God was going to see me through it. And there was at one point when, you know, it finally all just kind of hit me, the never racing again, barely being able to walk, and I was just freaking out. And I got online, and I started reading my emails and my comments, and there was just, it was just like verse after verse. And I remember thinking, thanks, God, now I can go to sleep. <laughs> you know, he got me through the night, and that, that was how powerful God was, was that those verses were always there when I needed them. And it was just, I mean, it would just be all different ones, whatever pertained to that moment. 
good question. <laughs> Anything else? You know, um, my family, since my grandparents have been Christians, and so I was, I've, was born and raised in the same church that I go to now. I actually drive 50 miles to continue going to that church because I've moved away. Um, and I remember being six years old, and I was in the car on, on 50 along here, and, my, and there was all these accidents, and my dad was freaking out, and he's like, get down. You're going to accept Jesus right now. Because <laughs> if you died, you're of that age. I want to make sure you go to heaven. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> Right on, Dad. And, and then, just to make sure God believed me, I think like six years later when I was 12, you know, I accepted him again. And, you know, for, I just wanted to make sure he believed me. So for many nights, I would always keep accepting him to make sure he knew I really meant it. I was like, really, God? <laughs> My thing is, but you, I have this great relationship with God. I mean, I feel guilty over everything. It's just my whole life. Oh, I feel bad. I thought that thought or... You know, I wanted to beat that girl, and oh, I shouldn't think that way. And you know, being a professional, that's one of the things you struggle with. That's how I made my money. You know, and that's and I would sometimes get caught up in the media pitting us against each other. And she was an atheist, uh, so every time, of course, I would win and I would stand on the podium and thank God. She would kind of roll her eyes and couldn't figure out why she didn't like me until about three years later when someone told me, "Oh, she's an atheist and she hates when you thank God." I was like, I'm going to do it even more now. No, <laughs> no really. <laughs> In the back? It's at Albiani Middle School in Elk Grove. And I live outside of Placerville in Somerset. It's literally 50 miles. Well, yeah, I mean, well, the church used to be on 47th, and then it, it's moved to movie theater and then here and there, but it's based out of Elk Grove. But what's so funny is I live on 40 acres of property, and there's a church right at the end of my road that my grandparents started. I could walk there. Even I could walk there in like five minutes, but I still drive all the way to here. You know, you just you, you find your niche, and you find the people you like being around, and you stick with it. You had a question? Yes. Um, was there something specific that happened during a very good question. I had already had the website established, and I would do my race reports and, and everything race-related, and... It was a way for me to keep people updated, I think, and it was a way for me to show people how much God was playing this huge role in getting through the cancer. Because like I said, you can go back, and every, every blog since day one that I started it is on there if you scroll down. It's my name, jamiewhitmore.com, if you want to visit. But, um, you know, and, it, and it, it was what was most amazing was how many people that I did reach through that blog. I had, at the very beginning, I had like six people who had lost their faith, read my blog, and came to know Christ again. And I remember the first person that emailed me to tell me that. And I turned to my husband and said, it was worth getting cancer for that. 
it was worth it to me to know. And if my rival comes to know Christ because of what I've gone through, it'll be worth it. And, and it, was th- it was thinking in terms like that. If I can change one person's life, it, it really is worth it to me. And yeah, I miss racing. I'll always miss racing. And I still get teary-eyed when I watch that. But you know, then I, then I start to think about all the people that I know I've made a difference. You know, so very good question. <laughs> Any others? Being blind, I could like put my sunglasses on. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And my shirt's falling down. Oh, and the race is good. There it is. Nice. Nice. That's cool. Thank you. We'll let her hear you one more time. Thanks, Jamie, for being here. I, um, I think it's funny that she, that she, you know, one of the things, one of her priorities during that whole thing was, you know, first of all, to live. And then she said to, to be able to have kids someday, <laughs> you're having two right up front. So that's awesome. And I guess I just want to end by saying this. Um, it's amazing what God took Jamie through and, and gave her the strength to make it. And as a pastor, so many times we deal with people in situations um, that don't know Christ, that don't, they don't know how to deal with it, they don't know what to do. And um, they'll come to know Christ and they make it through these situations. And Jamie, I want to say this, you know, who knows what else God has planned for you? Right? What's the best thing about you is, is not your physical ability. It's the spirit God's put in you. You're a pretty incredible person just to sit here and listen to. And uh, so I can't wait to see what's next. It's going to be amazing. And, um, but along with Jamie, I, I would say it to a lot of you too. Like, if you take her life and add Christ to it, and she can stand here and say this, and you're where you're at now, and you don't know Christ, where would you be if you added him to your life? What are the possibilities? You know, what holds you back? Because I don't know about you, but when I listen to Jamie, I think, I don't have any more excuses. (laughs) They're all gone. You know, there are no excuses. You know, and my excuses are things like busyness and whatever. There are no more. He, He takes them all away when you hear stories like this. So, so I wanted to end tonight by just praying with you. And, and, and I did say this. If, if there are any, I do want to say this. If there are any of you that are here that don't know Jesus Christ and you've never invited him into your life, I wish I could sit down with every one of you and, and tell you, you know, what happens when you invite the God of the universe, your creator, to be the guy that directs your paths to be the strength that gets you through whatever it is you're going through, good or bad. How he changes our attitudes. How when you wake up in the morning, life looks totally different than it did before. And tonight, if you're here and that's you, and you're like, man, I, I do want to know Christ. And I've never invited him into my life before. Afterwards tonight, after I pray here, you know, you can come find me. I know you can come and talk to Jamie. Also, if you have any questions, I know, you know, she's... 
she's just great to talk to, and I know she'd be willing to talk to you. And um, Eric's here, and any of the leaders from Epic Life, we want you to live that epic life. The Bible says that Jesus came to give us life and help us live it to the fullest, to experience everything life has to offer. And that's why, you know, Eric came up with this name, Epic Life, because I think that's the life Christ wants us to live. And um, so afterwards tonight, if you have a question about how to invite Christ into your life, come talk to us. We would love to introduce you to him. But let's pray for a minute. Um, pray, first of all, for Jamie and this incredible journey. I've got four boys, so if you've got any questions, I got you. I got you. So let's just pray. And I want to invite you, too, to continue to pray for her and her family. What, what an amazing journey. And, and the best is yet to come, obviously. I mean, all this stuff, the world champions, the 41, that was cool. But just wait to see what's next. It, it's going to be amazing. So, God, we just thank you that you sent us this, this incredible person with this amazing story. Um, it's stunning. And it's even more stunning that you can be with all of us at the same time in all of our stories. We've all got a story. And they're all different. Some are just crazy insane. And some of them seem kind of regular. And, and if we're one of those people with a regular story, God, our, our regular lives, when you're at it, become amazing. And I pray that you'll help us all to see that. And I do pray for Jamie and Courtney and these two beautiful boys that are on the way. And I want to say thank you for them. And I'm just asking you, God, to put your hand in protection and your continue to heal her, God, in every way, whenever it's needed. And I pray you provide for them all the stuff that goes along with these kind of issues, finances and everything. God, I pray that you would give them everything need, every blessing that they could ever need. I pray you would just take care of them in this situation. Thank you for a dad that was a great example. In Biff, Lord, that example that he has been, that loving, consistent, always there dad that was a, a great view of you, God. I'm thankful for that. I pray you'd bless him through this whole process as well. And, Lord, anybody that's here tonight that doesn't know you, that this might be the first day, the first evening, the first moment of an amazing life from this point forward. And whatever we're going through, you can take away our past and give us a brand new future. You accept us however we come. You just never leave us the way you find us. And I pray tonight that you'll help us all to see that. And thank you for this inspiration for all of us. And we give you honor tonight in your name. Amen. Amen. Will you help me and give Jamie one more round of applause? Thanks, James. <laughs>